Welcome to Render Time. I'm Richard Lutz, and this is episode number two with Griffin Hammond. Griffin is a reporter and documentary filmmaker for Bloomberg News, but he got to start making content for a YouTube channel called Indie Mogul. In this episode, we discuss how Griffin created his own opportunities by making a short film called Sriracha. We also talk about advice that he would give filmmakers. Griffin, how are you, man? I'm good. How are you, Richard? I'm doing quite well. How are things in New York? Have you guys been busy at Bloomberg? Yeah, we've been very busy uh, with the conventions the last few weeks. That's awesome. I mean, what was... It's interesting because it's like I've been following your work for uh, for quite some time now, and it's it's impressive to see how you've gone from indie mogul to Bloomberg. I mean, that is one hell of a convention or uh, transition from going from making DIY equipment to playing with the biggest pros in the world. Yeah, it's funny. I, I think about how like it's hard for me to describe myself on a resume like I do uh, hot sauce documentaries and uh, cover presidential politics. What has been the that's that's really fascinating to me because I was a broadcast production major at uh, Washington State, mm-hmm. and it's it's really interesting because I started out in a very DIY roots as well in with my college TV station, and it's really interesting to see how people go from A to B. Yeah, it's weird because I was also in uh, in undergrad. I did some TV news at uh, Illinois State University, and so I know a lot of people that. That was their goal: is to work in television news, and everyone does the same thing. They they start in college, and then they go work for like a top two hundred market, like Peoria, Illinois, or something, at midnight, and then then they work their way up to a slightly bigger town in Illinois, and eventually they try to get into Chicago. Maybe they try to get to New York after that, and somehow I just like avoided all of that. I didn't do the traditional route. I didn't even think I wanted to work in television news and somehow I found myself here. That's that's incredible because like I uh, I debated going the news route for a minute and uh, there was a station um, it was a it was a bottom 200 station. I would have been doing creative services and I just thought to myself, you know, like if I'm going to start at the bottom, I might as well start at the bottom in Los Angeles. Yeah. Yeah, it always just sounded terrible, like the the career track for for television news. Yeah, I mean, it would have been creative services, and it's, I mean, after going to ad school and learning how to craft advertising, I'm like, you know, like, I'm going to go, if I'm going to get somebody coffee, I'm going to get the biggest, um, I'm going to get the biggest people in the world coffee. Yeah, <laughs> if possible. I mean, that's the that's the game. But I know that it's more than just that. It's about creating work that creates impressions and value for people. Yeah. So, um, what were I, it's? I'm I'm fascinated with how you like got involved with uh, indie mogul and what that transition was like. I mean, how did that happen? I mean, I know you're you were in Illinois at one point, and it. Um, and you, you said uh, Northern, no, it wasn't Northern Illinois. It was Illinois State University, right? Correct, yeah. What, how'd you go from Illinois State University? I know you were at State, State Farm for a minute. And how did you go from that to Indie Mogul? Well, yeah, I was working at State Farm out of college. I started as an internship, and I 
turned it into a video job by showing them that I could do video. It actually became a really great job. And for years, Justin Johnson, my friend who started Indie Mogul, uh, and we were good friends through the internet. We met several times in person, but uh, through filmfights.com is how we get to know each other. Uh, he'd been offering me different jobs over the years, and I was always just starting at State Farm or working on my master's degree. I always had something that was that was keeping me where I was. And finally, in 2011, when he decided he was going to leave Indie Mogul after been acquired by Google, he just thought he didn't want to work at a giant company like Google. And for me, Google was a lot smaller than State Farm. And I thought, if I don't take this job that Justin's offering me, he's going to stop offering me things. So this one sounds pretty cool. I should do this. Uh, and it was a big risk, though, to leave you know uh, uh, a job where you could. It was very uh, reliable, and I, I knew what I had, and it was, I knew I had a good job to try something different. But uh, it was great to be able to work for myself, work from home, uh, learn something new every day with Indie Mogul, build that audience. Just being part of that community was amazing, um, and so I, I learned a lot through that job. That's impressive. And I, what are some what are some of the biggest things you took away from Indie Mogul and just both successes and failures that came along the uh, the way? Well, I think the biggest thing for me was just having to produce new content every week. So it just kind of sped me up, um, and it it made me learn something that was important for my documentary that it's better to have content out in the world published rather than having perfect content. Uh, having to turn something around every week you know, just forces you to be like, well, it's not where I want it to be, but it's good enough that it's better that it exists. Like it, The audience will appreciate this more having it than not having a perfect uh, product that, that never comes into existence. Yeah, I, t I totally get that because I, uh, when I was, I was working at an ad agency in Minneapolis, um, and I remember we had just lost Cadillac. It was literally my second day there, and I was an intern. <laughs> That's always the the best news in the world. Oh, you just started here, and we've lost Cadillac. But it, it, we saw it coming a mile away. But one of the biggest things, I we had this big uh, agency restructure, and we were talking about how we can't put blame on other people. And going back to what you said a second ago, that um, it's better to have something shipped than perfect because in many ways we we only just we just kick the can down the road and it will never be perfect yeah yeah and so when I made my documentary it was like uh, I could spend another eight months and get this from like maybe right now it's at 90% of what I want it to be I could get it to 95 or 100% but it'll never be done uh, and I'm very happy that I've I got what I had out in the world and it did great. Yeah, and, and I, I mean, I remember uh, in the process of moving to Los Angeles, uh, um, I moved last October, but I made a trip down here in May, and I remember um, I was flying from Seattle, and I downloaded the documentary off of Vimeo On Demand, and it, I mean, it was it was well done. I mean, it, I liked how it um, it told the story, and, and it did its job. It told the story of Sriracha, and it was compelling. I mean, it, you really did a great job of diving into the culture of Sriracha and showing the history of it. Uh, it's, and what is it? Hoi Fong Foods? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was really cool just seeing how 
he came to the States and literally built a massive business and culture around uh, hot sauce. Yeah. It was a story I was actually just curious about myself, and so I was glad I could get to the bottom of some of it. Yeah, it's incredible. Um, and and how did Indie Mogul prepare you uh, for making sriracha? Well, I not only did I I kind of learn to you know to to get things out into the world and and, and do them you know on a quick turnaround. Um, I also just learned a lot through Indie Mogul. I mean. Anytime you're trying to teach people anything, you have to learn a lot yourself. And I kind of made Indie Mogul, you know, there's things I couldn't do in Indie Mogul as well as like Eric Beck before me, who is now back running the channel. Like, I'm not a prop builder. So I kind of had to decide what is Indie Mogul going to be for me as an executive producer. And I just thought this is an opportunity for me to learn a lot. And I should just learn as much as I can and share as much as I learn. And so every week I was just trying to pick up a new technique. And so there were there were things just in the year before I made my documentary that I discovered for the first time doing Indie Mogul. I mean, just various techniques and learning about cameras and learning about time-lapsing and, I mean, probably, you know, I, half the things I did in the film were things I had only learned in the in the previous two years running Indie Mogul. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember seeing your hyperlapse tutorial and seeing you go into... I mean, I, I'm on a... Per, I use Premiere. Um, yeah. I was using Final Cut Pro 7 until Steve Jobs pulled the rug um, <laughs> out from on all of us, which I'm still kind of upset about, but whatever, I'm on Premiere now. And it was really cool seeing how, seeing your process in learning technology like Hyperlapse and playing with sliders and different pieces of technology that um, gave your films and productions a little bit more of a cinematic value to them. Yeah. And I also just got a lot more comfortable with my own ability in those years on Indie Mogul. I got a lot more comfortable with my on-camera presence, um, which I didn't rely on too much in the documentary, but I, w I did use my voice. Um, so it's just all these things, I, just, I probably wouldn't even, even have been comfortable calling myself a filmmaker, trying to make a film, had it not been for my experience on Indie Mogul and the encouragement that I got from the fans of any mogul. Yeah, and, and it's it's really interesting because uh, um, I'm in the very early stages of uh, creating my own short film. I mean, in many ways, I am kind of being selfish and just asking questions about how you made this film because I know I'm in the very early stages. Right. Um, I went. To, I don't know if you know much about college football, but um, I went to Washington State, and if you turn on ESPN College Game Day. Um, Every Saturday, you will see the cougar flag waving in the background. We've been doing it for like 176 consecutive ESPN College game days. <laughs> it's insane. Like, in, it's like historically, we have a we can have an awful program at times. We've been known to blow leads in spectacular fashion. However, I'm really interested in learning how you um, how you were able to create this film and what advice you would give to young filmmakers who are trying to move the needle for themselves? I would definitely say that, one, you need to pick a topic that you're passionate about. So something like this, I mean, you're, you, you are intrigued about this topic, which is good, because you, you realize you're going to spend months and months and months working on something. You better love it the whole time, and you better have a natural curiosity for it. Um, so that's good. 
And then I think another thing that young filmmakers often do and, and come to me with questions about is they kind of hold off on producing a film until they feel like they have all the perfect equipment for it. And I feel like by the time you let that, until you, if you wait all that time to get the perfect camera, what you think is the perfect camera, uh, you're going to lose your opportunity or you're no longer going to be interested in making that film. Uh, you could have gained a lot of experience during that time making that film. Maybe it's not the best film you've ever made, but you'll make another film after that. So I just think like, even if all you have is an iPhone camera, go ahead and use that. Put it on a tripod, light it, and everything will look great. Uh, I think it's better to make a film than to like dream about making a film and waiting to make the perfect film. Because you can't do it anyway. Even with the perfect gear, you'll, you'll never make it the perfect film. It'll still fall short of your expectations in some way, and you have to be okay with that. Yeah, and that's a really great statement because um, the Academy Award winning film Waiting for Sugar Man was shot at parts on an iPhone because they ran out of cash. Yeah. I mean, I think that's the story I heard, um, which is truly, truly insane to me. It's, I mean... You never hear stories of that, rarely. And it's impressive to see how they pulled that off. Um, and so that's really interesting about, like, the whole portion of, like, just the advice on just, like, just diving in head first. I mean, um, I'm just looking at my notes here. Um, what, I guess the biggest thing that I'm interested in is um, what it, I mean, I, I, I've watched your video on, I've watched your video on writing a short film several times and it's interesting to me um especially on writing documentaries it's how did you proceed about going about this i mean did you have your characters in mind or did you have the story laid out when you went to people or did you just start talking to people and trying to bolt it together as you went it's a little bit of both i mean making a documentary is hopefully doing enough research that you know there's a story there worth telling. So I had something kind of outlined based on what I'd read, but there wasn't that many articles, that many interviews done with David Tran and that much information out there about the company. So I knew there was a lot of things I wanted to uncover. Um, and I'm very curious about facts and figures, and so I knew there was a lot of that I wanted to get across, but generally I, I could outline a basic story structure just based on, you know, I, I know this is the guy who made the factory uh, and who makes the sriracha. And, I, and every story is kind of the same. They, they, they follow a similar formula in, like, I know that there will be complications. Maybe I don't know what the complications have been for him, what were the struggles he had to overcome to build this, this empire. But generally, I know that he was successful, so I kind of know the outcome of the story. Um, so I, I know most of it. Yeah. And then when you... I think where, where, where like Dan Harmon's story circle is really useful in a documentary is you can kind of create questions based on the major plot points that you, you know you need to uncover. Um, so you can kind of go in asking someone, like, why, you know, if, if, I, if I believe that you're the protagonist, I can ask you a question that gets to what was your will or want as a character? Like, why did you want to do this in the first place? You know, make sure you ask the questions that are going to get to the heart of that and if you know you have to hit the complications what were the challenges your protagonist faced along the way ask questions that, that get to that point so you can, can kind of just go through his eight point list of kind of the, the eight sectors of a, of a classic story and just build even if you only asked every character eight questions you'd kind of get to the heart of that storytelling 
And what and what advice would you have for people who, in terms of just getting people involved and funding? Because I know that you uh, you got people involved very early on, and you announced the film before you were truly in production on Indie Mogul. I mean, is this a good strategy? And how did you get those people involved? Like Dan, well, not Dan Harmon, but. Uh, the creator of Sriracha. I mean, how, what was that process like? Well, I was in a very fortunate position. I think there's a lot of happy accidents that happened for me. There are some things that people can can definitely replicate, uh, and some things I was just lucky. Like, I was in a fortunate position starting off with the production that I was running in Mogul, so I had this large audience that was excited about what I was doing. And so I knew going in that, one, I could announce the film here, and I would instantly have a fan base, and two, that that fan base would keep me very accountable. So I kind of announced it early on just to force myself to follow through. Like once I tell several thousand people that I'm starting this project, now there's no turning back. Uh, and I think that that was helpful for me, just knowing that this is definitely going to end in a film now. It just kind of uh, forced me to get rid of all my, my excuses. Um, and then that also forced me to persevere through when people told me no. I knew that there'd be times in making a documentary that people would, would say no to participating. And I didn't know that David Tran would actually be the first person to tell me he didn't want to be part of it. But when I emailed him, the guy who makes Sriracha, he just kind of politely said, like, no, I don't need to be part of that film. And so that was my first test. Am I going to keep going? And I just emailed him back and I... I let him know that I wasn't in this, I didn't know what he imagined about me. I, th I thought I had done a pretty good job in my first email of explaining, but I realized, nope, I didn't, so let me try again. And I explained to him that, one, I am not in this for making a profit, I'm not trying to exploit him, I just truly am a fan of his product, I really respect his story, and I'm, I'm, I'm curious, and it's, I'm also not going to be that obtrusive. I don't know if you imagine I'm going to show up with a giant crew. It's really just going to be me and my friend Nick and a tripod and a microphone and a light. Like It's not going to be that big of a deal. And so that started a conversation. I think I, I said the right things and he had some questions for me, but that got me in the door. Yeah, it's, it's, it's impressive seeing. Like, I, I really enjoyed seeing how... Um, how the documentary unfolded, especially on the behind the scenes. Um, and how it just came to life and it's something that I'm really interested in repl replicating on my own um, I w I'm really interested in just trying to find those avenues where I can provide value to filmmakers because I mean I've only been in LA since October of last year so I haven't even been down here a full year yet um, however I know that there are many filmmakers like myself that are trying to find those opportunities to really just move the needle from them for themselves. Yeah. Well, I think you just said a, a perfect phrase. You, you said providing value. And I was just thinking in my head, like, what is it that makes a, a film successful? And I think at every stage, if you as the filmmaker can think about why would someone else want to, one, be in the film? Like, you need to be able to provide a reason that this is going to benefit someone. And I, I tried to do that in the productions, in the pre-production stage, getting people on board. Um, when I was setting up a Kickstarter, I'm thinking, why would anyone actually want to buy this? And too often, I think people are 
asking for money on Kickstarter without providing real value. Like they're not pricing their film at a price point that people would actually want to pay for it. I mean, you really got to put yourself in the shoes of your audience. Why would they want to watch this? Why would they want to buy this? Why would anyone want to participate in this thing? So I think if you continue that attitude in making a documentary, you'll be successful because you're always thinking about other people other than yourself. How did you negate those like those problems that you had going into different productions, and and how did you work around them? I mean, like I said, I just went in with an attitude that there's going to be challenges along the way, and I just have to never give up on my, my goal of making a film, and so I have to make the film no matter what. Mm-hmm. And so things went pretty smoothly until I got to New York. I took a trip to New York to uh, to shoot the, it's called the Fancy Food Show, and the mm-hmm. reason I went there was because um, a representative for the popular Thai brand of sriracha was going to be there. And at the time, I didn't even know if I was going to go to Thailand yet, so I thought this might be my only chance to really get that Thailand part of the story in the film. And that was a trip where I I went about lining up interviews the same way I did in L.A., and for some reason, maybe New Yorkers are just flakier or more willing to say no. I just had a bunch of people just not get back to me or say no, uh, different chefs that I was interested in talking to. Um, but luckily, I mean, I guess things just worked out. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm at the fancy food show, and, and one of the people that's doing press for it heard about what I was doing, and she said, oh, you know what? I, uh, my husband does press for Harold Dieterle. He was on Top Chef. He won the first season of Top Chef. Uh, he really loves sriracha. He may be interested. You want me to ask? And I was like, yeah, sure. So it's like I went there with one documentary in mind, with certain subjects in mind, and I came out with different people on camera. Yeah, that's, so, that's really cool. I guess you just kind of make the film that's in front of you. And again, you don't worry about making the perfect film. You just kind of make a film. So, well, that's interesting because it's like this film that I've been playing with has been in my head for three years, and I'm just like I've, I'm I'm turning thirty this year, which is terrifying to a certain degree. <laughs> and I realize <laughs> that like I can't keep twiddling my thumbs on these things. The only way that I'm going to do these things is by creating these opportunities for myself but that's true of everything within the creative arts especially filmmaking oh yeah yeah you gotta you gotta do it yourself I think I was also like I think I was like 29 when I was making sriracha kind of thinking the same thing like I'd set this arbitrary uh, time like before I turned 30 I should do something I know a filmmaker it's like it's funny because it's like I found, like, I were working in visual effects and working in Los Angeles, it's like, there's this, and I'm sure you probably feel it as well to a certain degree working in New York, there's a certain degree of pressure. It's like, oh, I got to, like, accomplish all these things. I got to get it done now. Time is fleeting sort of attitude. But then when you think about, like, Ridley Scott and Alien, he didn't make that till I think he was 40. Right. So... And- and I, I guess I think of I guess I think of filmmaking the same way I kind of think about running, which I also like, is that it's really a competition with yourself. Because uh, I mean, there's like a thousand runners in a race. I'm not going to win the thing, but I can set personal goals and I can beat my personal goals. And in filmmaking, I feel like there's there's always people that are more talented to more talented than me in certain parts of it. You know, I'm not into motion graphics. There's a lot of things I can't do very well. Um, I know I'm not the best shooter and the best editor, but I think I'm a pretty good combination of the two. Uh, so the best I can do is just kind of set 
personal goals. And yeah, there's always going to be younger people making better films than you, and there's going to be people that are making amazing films and they don't start until they're 40. But all you can do is just kind of make the best film that you can. Yeah, it's interesting because I I was running for a little bit, but then I kind of injured my heel. Mm-hmm. Like I. I I put in four miles one day and then wore the wrong shoes to work and my my heel's been a little messed up since but it's interesting to hear that analogy to um, running because most people that I know hate running <laughs> I mean I, I, I personally want a t-shirt that just says running sucks or running is stupid and just go running wearing that but it's it's interesting to hear the analogy to an a, a, uh, endurance sport yeah I mean, yeah, I feel like uh, my the one time I ran a marathon, and I'm planning on running another marathon next year. That I feel like that that did help me uh, with with filmmaking, and that like especially I think there's there's a lot of similarities between training for a marathon and making a film for eight months. Just yeah. being able to like get up every day and and working towards that long term goal. Yeah, especially with like documentary, because I did a documentary. I think it was four years ago it, it wasn't very long um i don't know if you saw it on my site it was this film called flashover which i um did about the home t- about my hometown fire department uh the mayor um in my hometown of washington um i grew up in a smallish agriculture community and the mayor laid off a third of the city's fire department um and that's like um the uh, De Blasio laying off five thousand firefighters in right. New York. I mean that. I mean that would be a nationwide news story in seconds. But yeah. I really focused in what does it mean in terms of public service and public safety was kind of the angle that I focused on. But I remember when I was cutting it, I really kind of got burnt out on just the process of just get trying to put energy towards it every way and I'm I'm really interested in learning how you dealt with a project like Sriracha which was double the length of mine I think you said you had like what 34 hours of footage yeah that's roughly, insane yeah. I mean one thing I did uh, I mean it's funny to bring up running again like running I think I like it because it's kind of like a it's a it's a sport you do by yourself and filmmaking should not be a sport you do by yourself but I've kind of made it that way. I, I, I like to do as much of it as I can and I know that I can trust myself to do it the way that I want to do it but uh, as much as you can of course you, you want to work with other people and so for me that's hard to bring in other people but I, I brought in a friend of mine Skylar Guymond to do some assistant editing on the project and he's someone who has editing experience not a lot of ex- editing experience but I knew that he at least understood the, the basics of it and I realized if I could take out some of the monotony of editing uh, and just leave the creative part to myself, I, I wouldn't get as burnt out. So what I had Skylar do was take my rough interviews and you know do the basic things like sync up the audio and set audio levels appropriately, and then he would transcribe the whole thing. You know, I might have a 15-minute interview or a 45-minute interview with David Tran. That was the longest one, um, and he would go through and he would transcribe it, take notes. Uh, start to chop it up, start to cut out my questions and just leave the answers and kind of leave it in this like perfect uh, state that I could I could begin the edit with um, and and I, I, I had him do some some additional editing you know taking things thematically putting them together uh, and then 
I think that just took a lot of the busy work out for me and let me not get totally burnt out and, and work on actually crafting the the creative part of the film. Yeah, I mean, that's really interesting to hear because it's like, I know a lot of documentaries, they get transcription, especially for huge projects, and they have teams of assistants that are doing all the mundane work just to take the pressure off of the um, the editors. I mean, I uh, every project I've done personally, I've had to be my own assistant and I've had to be my own editor. And it's it's interesting because people think that you can just put something together in a few hours, but I've found that my assistant work can take um, easily a day or two, depending on the size of the project. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's funny working in news now, because the the expectation for turning things around is a lot quicker than in the filmmaking world. Uh, and so, you know, we'll go shoot all day, and then it's like, hey, can we have this up tomorrow morning? It's like, no, we if we have, like, five hours of footage it's gonna take me like five hours just to like oh yeah and naming conventions i mean i know you're working in final cut pro 10 and it's a little different than say a premiere based interface in terms of it's i know final cut pro 10 is more searchable which is really interesting to me i wish premiere would grab some of those ideas but i know they're probably not um so i know it's a little different but it's still you have that assistant work yeah and uh so you did Sriracha, um, and I know there was a huge amount of um, attention that kind of came from it. Uh, how did you get in conversations with Bloomberg? Because that is, like I mentioned at the start, that's one hell of a transition to go from Indie Mogul to Bloomberg, which is easily one of the biggest news outlets in the world. Yeah, it was completely unexpected, and it wasn't a job I was looking for. Um, it but it's it's just another example of like why doing a passion project is is a great idea for me. It probably was the smartest I, smartest thing I've ever done in my career was making sriracha just because it's led to so many opportunities, including film festivals. And now I'm part of this program called the American Film Showcase, which is part of the State Department, and they're thinking about sending me overseas to teach people documentary filmmaking. It's like these sorts of things you could never even know they exist but they come along because you've made some you've put something out in the world and Bloomberg was just uh, someone at Bloomberg they were starting a new division called Bloomberg politics and someone had seen my film and just thought we're looking for someone who can shoot doc style stuff and this guy we like his film he has a uh, history of online of teaching people and he has a YouTube presence all that I guess so it was weird. They just called me out of the blue and said, hey, you want to come in for an interview? And I was like, for what? <laughs> what do you mean? Uh, and went from there. Yeah, that's awesome. I mean, I, I've, I've been blown away and in many ways humbled by your amazing rise to Bloomberg um, because if it's, if it's anything, it is proof that Yes, we start out. We can start out in a bottom two hundred network, or a runner at a visual effects company, or a production assistant on a reality show. But by through hard work and passion, we can create the opportunities that can move the needle for us. And that is that's such an inspiration for me. Oh yeah, and I think also for what I keep telling young people, especially people just graduating college, is I think 
it's impossible. I think all of us are too dumb to know what all of the opportunities are in our field. Like it's impossible to understand how many career paths we could take. Um, and I think we have this very specific picture in our mind about what the job would be for us and our, and our degree. And I think we just have to kind of like open up our minds and say like, there's a lot of companies that want video. Um, you, maybe you don't need to just work in Hollywood and start at the bottom. And I mean, unless, unless you know exactly what you want to do. I don't really know what I want to do in my career. So I've kind of opened myself up to what is there out there and who wants video done. And Absolutely. TV is a different world than film. In fact, the bar is a little bit lower for quality in television news. The, the expectation for turnaround time is quicker. But um, you can actually, I think in some ways, it's almost a little bit easier to, to do what I do in television just because uh, people are more impressed, I think. But I've, what I've noticed is you've... You've um you you met Chase Jarvis when you did Creative Live, right? Met who? Uh, Chase Jarvis. You were on a Creative Live where you taught documentaries. Yeah, yeah. I've been following Chase's career for I want to say ten years now. It might be that uh -huh. long. And something that he constantly has said is, you don't have to be better. You just have to be different about how you approach things. And uh, that's something that I've noticed in your work. I mean, I watched your piece on Iowa and you're using time lapse and you're using interesting angles that aren't accustomed to news. I mean, I am a news junkie. I mean, I'm following this election very, very closely. Um, it's it's fascinating. I'm, um, but it's, it's interesting to see how you've come at... Um, presidential politics in a different angle. Oh, yeah. Well, and it's funny that you say different angle because, yeah, literally that's been kind of my mantra is pointing the camera somewhere else that everyone's not uh, because I don't have the... I realize that I, I'm freed up a little bit in this job where I don't have the requirement that I have to turn around breaking news like a lot of the people I'm on the campaign trail with. You know, I'm, I'm surrounded by people from NBC and ABC and yeah. CNN and a lot of them just have to point the camera right at the candidate who's speaking because they're broadcasting it live or they're going to have to turn it around minutes later. And I have the freedom that I'm not worrying about live breaking news. I have some time to turn things around that I've, I've decided if everyone's pointing the camera at one thing, I should probably not do that because yeah. uh, everyone's going to get that news the, the way they always do. So I should probably try to find a different story. So anytime I see a scrum around a candidate, I usually just go, eh, that's what it, everyone's excited about talking to Hillary right now, but like, I know they're going to get it better than me, they're going to get it faster than me, I'll just, uh, I'll go do something else and not get the shot that's terrible because I'm bouncing around inside that scrum. So I've, I've started just, I mean, even when I'm at an event with a candidate speaking, I'll just, instead of standing in the back and going head on like everyone else does, I'll just go to the side and and I find myself getting these shots that I'm excited about that are different. They just and they, you're right, they do look just different than TV looks normally. Yeah, and you're providing a lot of depth there that is fascinating. Um, what are some of the biggest things you've learned in covering presidential politics? I mean, is correct me if I'm wrong, but this is your first presidential rodeo, isn't it? Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, I think for me, I mean, a lot of it's logistical, like getting the experience of, of covering these kinds of events means that now I understand how Secret Service works and I understand what kinds of gear I can bring in and what I can't. I know that my gear is going to have to be sniffed by a dog every time I go to cover Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton. Um, 
and you know how to get credentials for these things and where I can stand on the rope line and before someone tells me I'm not supposed to be there you know you kind of learn the tricks of getting the closest you can to a candidate getting your your questions answered but I think mostly I've, I've learned that and I think it's made me a little bit more cynical about every candidate just because you hear them when you go to all of their events, you, you hear them saying, giving the same stump speech over and over and over again. So it all starts to feel a little bit hollow because uh, you realize it's not as genuine as you might think when you're watching it on TV, seeing it for the first time because you've heard this person tell yeah. the story or tell that same joke and laugh the same way a hundred times. I mean, I can't blame them. That's yeah. how you have to do it. But uh, it starts to just feel a little bit inauthentic. But then on the flip side, I meet a lot of voters from around the country uh, in this job, and it's heartening to see that we're a lot, all a lot more similar than we're different. I think candidates will try to drive a wedge between us because that's what works to, to make us vote one way or the other. But um, you know, whether I'm talking to people in New York or Pennsylvania or Iowa, we all kind of want the same thing. And people on both sides of the aisle are wonderful people, and I love talking to them, and they're really nice, uh, regardless if I agree or disagree with their stance on a particular issue. Yeah, and it's it's interesting that you bring those things up, because it's like, I mean, this is my fourth presidential election, I think it is. One, two, three, four. Yeah, I think it's four. And it's, this has been the, I mean, I'm sure you've seen this firsthand, but this has been like the most polarizing and divisive presidential election that we've seen in a considerable amount of time and it's I think all Americans want the same thing but it's interesting how we are approaching it and I'm not trying to get into the politics I don't think this is the platform for this um, I think that I think presidential politics is better served through the media um, and through journalists who are trying to br- tell us the facts yeah um, so we'll, we'll, we'll get back to the topic at hand um, what are some of the b- biggest lessons that Sriracha um, has taught Sriracha and Inimogo has taught you about filmmaking, and how is that? I think I've already asked this, but I'm I'm really interested about how everything you've learned has uh, come into focus at Bloomberg. Let's see. I mean, that's a great question. I I, I don't know. I think I'm still figuring it out. Um, I, or I probably haven't even synthesized for myself what I've learned, uh, but I'm sure that I have. Um, I mean, it's it helped me figure out what I what I like and, and what I don't like. Um, I think making the film kind of taught me that I I love shooting a lot more than I realized. I think for a long time I never considered myself a cinematographer. I always thought of myself as kind of like making things pretty in the edits, but um, never doing anything particularly exciting on the shooting side and I think Sriracha made me a lot more comfortable with composing shots and uh, I learned to love that that side of it so sometimes now in my job I find myself shooting almost for fun I think in news I'm I'm shooting not necessarily knowing what I'm gonna make yet so I find myself shooting more than I definitely more than I'll need because I don't know which piece I'll end up making you know I'm at the conventions and let me just start shooting everything because I might need all the b-roll of Bernie protesters if I'm asked to make a piece about specifically protesters Um, so but I but I find myself enjoying that like I'm shooting all this stuff knowing that it won't maybe it'll never see the light of day but I actually just enjoy the act of 
pointing a camera at things and composing shots. Yeah, and it's interesting that you bring that up because when I shot Flashover, I remember sitting in the edit and just thinking to myself, God, every one of these shots is like a still life. It doesn't move. And the next film I do, it's, I want motion and I want to add something that makes it more interesting from a cinematic standpoint. But, yeah, and it's been, it's oh, go been ahead. fun. It's been fun to to kind of change my visual style too. Like I've I've enjoyed the show Mr. Robot, and I realized that the way that that show is shot with these kind of like crazy amount of headroom and disregard for the rule of thirds, kind of throwing things into into corners and and pointing the camera more up. It, it's it's allowed me to break out of my very rule based shooting that I've been doing for years and yeah. try some things. So I find myself on the campaign trail kind of framing things in different ways uh-huh. because of influences like that. It's interesting that you bring that up because I've only watched like an episode and a half. I'm so bad at watching that, but um, I'm, I'm going to have to go back and look at that. And I mean, even, I don't know if you've seen the show, uh, Jessica Jones, but their use of Dutch angles and tilt shifts to yeah. drive focus on certain things. I, I've never seen that before, but I was like, okay, that's interesting. That's really interesting, like using a Dutch angle as an establishing shot. I, I, I'm, I was only like an episode or two in, but I was like, that's fascinating. Yeah. So, um, what advice would you have for, say, a younger filmmaker? I mean, I know there's a, I know, I know a lot of filmmakers um, who are in the early stages of their career. They may only be a year in, or they might be five or six years into their career. What advice would you give these people who are um, new at this? Well, I think we all bring something different to the table, and so. You want to learn as much as you can. I mean, especially while you're young, you you have what I don't have right now. Like I'm too busy in my job to to do much learning and practicing in in new fields. I wish I could, you know, learn more uh, motion graphics and 3D uh, sort of rendering. And I just don't have the time anymore, like I did when I was in high school. In high school, I could just like learn every editing platform because I had the time. So. While you're in college, while you're in high school, do that. You know, find what you like and, and learn as much as you can because you'll enter the workplace uh, with that valuable skill that your older colleagues won't have the time to pick up. Um, and then you also can kind of discover what your your style is, what your voice is, because we all are going to be different. So learn as much as you can, but don't feel like you have to do everything like everyone else does. I think, especially if you don't wait. If you start using the gear you have in front of you and you're resourceful, you'll start finding that there's a way that you tell stories based on the gear you have, based on the friends you have, the access you have to certain props and sets. Uh, you know, just, just by what's around you and what your natural tendencies are, you'll kind of figure out how you make films differently than other people. Mm-hmm. And I, I say embrace that. Don't feel like you have to do it the same way everyone else does because what makes you unique is what will make your work interesting to watch and I think that's a really strong note um, because like I know you shot um, Sriracha on what was it a GH3 or 4 GH3 yeah yeah and I mean I'm on the GH4 and it's like I, I, I constantly complain about like the low light quality and I wish I had an A7S but 
at the end of the day, gear's just gear, and it, it's trivial, and it doesn't really matter. I mean, there's been some incredible stuff that's been shot with webcams and backup cameras on a Prius. Yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I see so many people, you know, I, I even got a question from someone the other day that was like, hey, um, you know, people want to run their gear purchases past me and, and make sure they're getting the right stuff. And I think someone said something like, I, I got my... Uh, Atomos Shogun HDMI recorder slash monitor. Uh, you know, I got my like Ronin three uh, X's gimbal, and they named all the stuff they got. And then and they're like, now I'm trying to get the camera. And, oh my god! And, and I was just thinking, like, uh, like you're kind of doing this in the wrong order. Like, but I, I can see why this happens because people are reading these forums and everyone's saying, well, like this is the perfect gimbal to get the smoothest look and this is the perfect recorder to get 10-bit recording at 444 you know color space and 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 I think people just need to take a step back and realize that when we're talking about like the perfect gear to reach like the highest quality we're really talking about like the last one percent of quality Mm -hmm. like the first 99 percent of quality is going to come from your choices as a filmmaker what are you going to point the camera at are you going to light it well is the content going to be interesting? And I think once you've achieved all of that, you really have maxed yourself out, then worry about, oh, maybe I should stop recording in camera and start recording to an external recorder because I can get that tiny bit of extra quality that will help me do visual effects better or whatever it is. But like, I'm not even at that level. I'm at the level where I'm getting exactly the quality I need in camera, and there's no reason for me to shoot uh, on an external recorder. So I definitely don't think people need to start that way. I think the priorities are a little bit off when people are worried about getting 100% of the quality when I'm not even sure they have the experience yet to even get that. Yeah, and it's, I mean, I, I, I'm guilty as charged uh, when it comes to gear. I mean, the BH catalog comes in the mail and I'm like, ooh, I need that, 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 and that. <laughs> oh, that's a price tag of $22,000 just for the camera body. I mean... I think that's unrealistic. Unless you're made of money, most people don't have the ability to pull that off. I think it's right. uh, I think it's more practical to spend the time and energy focusing on a film as opposed to the gear to make the film. Because, I mean, the Blair Witch Project, which is dated at this point in time, was shot on a like an Hi8 camera. I mean, right. That, but it was. It was genius about how they went about that storytelling. Yeah, I think uh, you, you'll go you'll go mad if you're trying to to get all the perfect gear, and and you'll never make a film because you're always going to be waiting to to get something. But uh, I always think that you should max out the gear you have. You know, take what you have, and once you realize that you've hit a ceiling, like oh man, I can't do what I want to do because this only shoots in 1080. I really am going to need that 4K camera. Then get that 4k camera uh but i don't think you need to start with that because i think you'll you'll end up with gear that that exceeds your ability and then what's the point in that i do want to be conscious of your time because i i understand that you are incredibly busy i mean you're working through a presidential election and you're trying to cover politics and you're i mean that is that is not easy in any way shape or form so much respect on that end. I guess um, I'm curious about um, what are your final thoughts? I mean, what what have we not covered that you wish you could 
um, conveyed to um, this audience and people who are new to this and trying to find those opportunities? Well, I think we've we've covered much of it. I, I guess I would just reiterate that I I've gotten so many wonderful emails from people saying that they they saw my documentary, they saw the behind the scenes stuff I made, and it inspired them to go out and make their own. And I've watched. Luckily, a lot of these people have emailed me when they started a project, then they email me in the middle of it, and then they email me when it's done. And so I've been able to see people go through the same process that I've gone through, uh, come up with an idea and be inspired to do it, and then eight months later they have something and they're going to film festivals and they're so excited about it. So I, it's just, I can see over and over and over again that everyone can do this. And people are inspired by me to try it, and then they succeed and do it. And so I think just... we. We want that chain to keep going. I think anyone who's listening right now thinking like, oh man, I have this great idea. I'm not sure if my gear can support it. I think you just got to go do it because uh, everyone can. And uh, I think they've been pretty happy with the out- outcome. Well, absolutely. Well, Griffin, thank you so much for the opportunity. I mean, I know you're busy, so I don't want to keep you. Oh yeah. No, it was great talking to you. Well, that was episode number two. Big thanks to Griffin for being on the show. Keep up the good work, man. I'm loving what you're doing over at Bloomberg, and I hope you put out another doc here really, really soon. If you would like to follow Griffin, you can find him on YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter. I would also encourage you to check out his film, Sriracha. It's a really good example of what filmmakers can do on their own and making those opportunities for themselves. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with someone that you know that's trying to make it as a filmmaker. This episode was packed with tons of information of examples of how we can create our own opportunities. And until next time, get out there, make some films, and create those opportunities for yourself. See you next time.